Well, hello, everyone. Welcome home and welcome to the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. I pray that these messages are bringing you encouragement in some tough days. As always, I invite you to visit mountcarmelministries.com for more information about attending these sessions in person, either by yourself or with your entire family. Our college-age summer staff will teach your kids about running the race that God has set before us while you can relax and be immersed in the Word with one of our guest teachers. We pick up today in the second half of Steve Thomason's June 21st teaching on anxiety and anger and how God works through those things. Enjoy. Question, and I welcome all of these kinds of questions, but the question was asked for me to define the word systemic because I have used it several times and there are lots of words that I use that I forget that people don't use those words. <laughs> so uh, if there's ever, if there's anything that I say that you don't get, there's no shame in that for sure. And I invite you to raise your hand and say, stop, I don't know what you meant when you said that. Um, I won't, I welcome that. I think it's fine. Uh, so what I mean by systemic is the word system Think about, like, um, well, I use the metaphor of an engine. An engine in a car is a system. It has tubes. It has electrical parts to it. Um, We use the word system in the human body a lot. So there's multiple systems in the body. There's the circulatory system, which is the heart, all the blood vessels, and how those work together. That's a system. Um, We have the digestive system and all of the parts, the mouth, the throat, the stomach, the intestines, the rectum, all of that is digestive system. But then we also have how all of those subsystems work together to form the human body, which is itself a system. So when I say systemic, what I mean is something that is not just one little part of it, but is a problem that's running throughout the whole system. And I usually apply systemic to society. So like, for example, um, child hunger in in the urban context is a problem, right? But it isn't about not having enough food to feed kids in the urban setting. It's a systemic problem of food and wealth distribution and all of these bigger, higher level systemic issues that you don't solve by putting a Band-Aid on. It's like you don't cure cancer with a Band-Aid on a tumor. You have to look at the whole system. Does that help? That's what I mean by systemic. I'm also a systems thinker, so everything in my mind is systemic issue because nothing is isolated. Everything is connected and interconnected. So, but great question, and thank you. So to begin today, uh, I want to um, want to watch this video. It's a little peek into a therapy session. It's a particular therapy approach. And I want to see what you think about it, okay? So here we go. you wish to address. Tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Okay, Uh, well, 
I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just, I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No, no, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes, yes, that's it. All right, well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Shall I uh, write them down? Well, if, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most we find most people can uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, you're there. Stop it! New word, IT. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So, I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, 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 you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that... It's frightening. It is. Then stop it. I can't. I mean, it's been with me no, since no, child. No, no. <laughs> so, how did that make you feel? A lot of laughter. I do want to hear just some comments, though, about what, did, what was your response to that video? Get the... Well, I think we're going to get the microphone to you. That was Bob Newhart, by the way. His uh, first Bob Newhart show when he was a psychotherapist. Yeah. I felt a little bit guilty. You felt guilty? Imagining, well, remembering ways that I've kind of done the same thing. Well, thanks for being honest. Yeah. Let's all just confess. Anybody else feel a little bit of guilt or shame over that? Yeah, okay, all right. Yes. Yes, Connie. Suicidal it, tendency. Yeah, and her dad said, snap out of it. Snap out of it. And, uh, yeah, that's his advice, and that's all he had to say to me. Is she okay? Now she is. Now she is, oh. Well, praise God that she has worked through it. Good. Yes? So I'm sure it was intentional, but the, the whole setting is just a total power display with him sitting behind a desk with kind of all the symbols of authority, and then she is kind of in the chair across from the desk and just, you know, just totally a one-sided. The power differential was painfully painful. Yeah, good observation. Thanks for bringing that up. That would be a systemic issue of power and the abuse thereof, right? White men 
exerting power over weaker people in the system. I had a medical exam the other day, just an eye exam, and there was this huge box in my room, and my dad used to put me in a closet when I was an ugly little girl. So I, I looked at her and I said, what are you going to do with that box? And the eye exam, and she said, Now, I haven't forgotten boxes. Oh, interesting. So you could really empathize with this woman in the video. Fascinating. So how would you have felt? I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. How would you have felt if, if I just said, stop it? I wouldn't have liked you. I wouldn't have liked you. <laughs> you would not have liked me very much. Good answer, because you shouldn't have. Yeah. One other comment. Anybody else have any thoughts? And that's fine. I just, I showed that to you for a couple reasons. Uh, we just came back from a break. It does elicit really uncomfortable laughter, uh, just to lighten it up, but also does point out um, all the things we do wrong when we're dealing with, uh, when we're interacting with. See, even the word I just said, dealing with, right? That, that's a slip. That's, that's an unhelpful word. Because when you're dealing with something, it's like you're such a problem to me and I'm just dealing with you. Um, so I, I try to use language about um, journeying with my son. Um, working with is a little better than dealing with, but uh, just, just language and, uh, and stop it doesn't work. So thanks for indulging me. Uh, my, my, my parents actually showed me that video last week and I thought, eh, that might work. Um, but right now, we're going to overcome anger. Or are we overcome by anger? How do we overcome? By walking through, right? We don't escape it. We understand it, and we walk through it. So as, as the pattern now is I want to talk about what is anger, then we're going to say, what does the Bible say about anger, and then what can we do about anger. So first of all, what is anger? Anger is a gift from God. Anger, this is my personal definition of anger, okay? So you can't Google this. Anger is a God-given natural response to a threat or a violation. And the threat is a form of a violation. I like to think of it as an alarm system. So think about your home, the place that you live. Inside of your home are all the things that are precious to you. And typically that's what we do with our home. We, we nest in there. And the, the uh, physical things that we own that we really like, like I, I really like my computer a lot, and I, I like my guitar, and I like my couch, you know, things like that. But more importantly are the people that are precious to us. My family lives in my home. And so a lot of people have security systems that they put around their home. It's a perimeter. So what happens if a burglar comes into your home, they breach the perimeter. And what happens if they breach your security system perimeter? Whoop, whoop, 
an alarm goes off. Why? To alert you that there's a threat that somebody wants to come and do harm to the things that are precious to you. Is it wrong to have a perimeter system, alarm system around your home? Does that mean you're a selfish person? No. It means you care about the things that are precious to you because you really don't want someone to break into your home and hurt mostly. I mean, it's, we, we really don't want people to steal stuff, but stuff is stuff. But we really don't want people to hurt our family, right? Because they're a gift from God. So anger is in our physical systems, just like fear is a sympathetic nervous system response to a threat. Anger is, an, is what a psychologist call a secondary emotion. You don't just suddenly be like, oh, man. <laughs> whenever someone is angry, whenever you're angry, you need to ask a question and say, why? And I think to get to the heart of the why question is to say, what perimeter has just been tripped in my life? We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Now, everyone experiences anger. I'm just curious, let's do a, do a pop quiz. We don't need a mic for this. What are some things that make you angry that you're willing to share? What makes you angry? Yes. Your kid's not listening. Yes. So what has been violated? Why does that make you angry? Because what is a child supposed to do? honor and respect their parents. And when they don't, that's a value system in your life. And you also know deep that by them not listening and honoring you, it, someday you're going to tell them to do something that's going to hurt them, tell them not to do something that's going to hurt them, and if they don't learn how to listen to you, they could get hurt, right? This is all about safety. But when your children don't listen to you, They've just violated a moral code in your life, and you get angry. You, Bert, you had one. Oh, you didn't raise your hand. Oh, other driver. Oh, let's talk about other drivers, and then we'll get to yours. Who gets angry at, at other drivers? Who shouts at other drivers? Yeah, they can't hear you. Okay, let's just get that out right on the table. But why do we get angry when people cut us off? Safety and you're not following the rules, right? We just did this yesterday on our way up to Mount Carmel, that horrible intersection of uh, 494, no, 35W and 494. Who invented that interchange? I'm angry on so many levels. It's like zipper merge, people, zipper merge, right? So we get a lot of road rage because people feel violated when they get cut off. Now here's a little tip. No one can cut you off if you let them in. 
Yes, sir, you had your hand up. Oh, 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 now we're treading into the water. When a politician or a pastor says something that you don't agree with, you become angry. There's a lot of rage in the political landscape. So why? Why, why do you think you become angry when, when, a, when a person says something that you don't agree with? Why does anger flare up? Yeah. Right, because, because, you see how this is playing out? What he said was, in case you didn't hear, because you believe that the thing that that person said, if that, I'm putting some more words into your mouth, but if, if the thing that that person said comes to fruition, you believe that the effect of that thing will hurt you or your country. That's a violation. The only point I'm trying to make is that anger is a secondary emotion that alerts us to a violation of something that we cherish. And that's why we get angry. It's important to name it. Now, anger manifests in two basic ways. There are the exploders, ah! and there are the imploders. I ask permission for what I'm about to say. My wife is an exploder, and I am an imploder. She grew up in a family of exploders, and I grew up in a family of imploders. Try to play out the first year of our marriage. <laughs> she terrified me. And I frustrated her beyond measure. Because here's what imploders do. See, well, let's start with the positive of exploders. Exploders, they get mad, they yell, and then they're done. Imploders absorb it, absorb it, stew get bitter, and then six months later, they're like, where did that come from? Because it finally comes out, right? Neither one is good or bad. It just is. And in marriage counseling, you just got to figure that out. So I learned that she needs to explode when she's angry. And so does one of my daughters, because she's just like her mother. I'm frightened sometimes. And I have learned that I need to speak up quicker. When I'm angry, I need to let people know. Because when I stuff it, the only person I hurt is me. Right? Both of them uh, can do physical and emotional damage if left unchecked. Because exploders left unchecked can become abusers physically, emotionally. They can yell and scream and belittle their children or their spouse or their friends. They can cross the line and start hitting, uh, physically abusing. And, and obviously that is a destructive form of explosive anger. Imploders can do just as much physical damage. Most of the physical damage manifests through ulcers, through uh, buoying up in anxiety disorders, uh, 
through um, depression and through passive-aggressive manipulation, which ultimately is a relational destroyer, right? So we need to learn how to deal with the expression of anger. But hear this. Anger is a gift from God. Anger is not bad. God becomes angry. So I want to look at the scripture. I want you to turn to, this is where it's really tricky because what I'm about to do, I could talk for a really long time about. So I'm going to go really fast. I'm not going to have someone read this scripture, but I want you to turn to John chapter 2. This is the story of Jesus as he's coming into the temple and he's cleansing the temple. And Jesus gets mad. Jesus becomes flat-out angry. And I, I really don't like it when people anesthetize this, or, or uh, not anesthetize, that means putting somebody to sleep, sanitizes this story. Um, because, uh, let me just tell you the story. But before I do, we already asked, I already asked the question, what makes you angry? And this story of Jesus coming in and cleansing the temple, I think, helps us understand what makes God angry. All right, so the story is found in John chapter 2, and I'll just paraphrase the story. Jesus comes into the temple, and he sees that in the temple courts, there are money-changing tables. And just to give a little context, people would come, uh, in the Jewish sacrificial system, people were expected to come for the Passover and bring an animal to be sacrificed at the temple. And if they traveled from a long distance, there was a couple different things they could do they could choose to not bring their oxen, you know, 50 miles. They could choose to bring money, and they could buy a temple oxen and, and have that be exchanged for the sacrifice. And if you were poor and you, you didn't have a, a large livestock to be sacrificed, you would do the, the poor person's sacrifice, which was a, a pigeon or a dove, and they would come And what was happening is that the religious leaders were taking advantage of this system and they were extorting the people financially and they were making way more money for the temple than they needed to uh, in exchange of temple goods, right? Kind of um, exploiting the system. Jesus was not fond of this practice uh, for so many reasons. And so this is kind of tips off our hand as to what makes God angry. But this isn't the only example of Jesus' anger. Do you remember, especially uh, Matthew's portrayal of Jesus is the angriest Jesus, even angrier than John's. But Jesus said, here's how I feel about people who hurt children. You better tie a millstone around your neck and throw yourself in the lake before I get to you. Because that's how much I love children and am angry when someone hurts them, right? And here's one of the most difficult passages to understand about Jesus is when Jesus in Matthew 10 said, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword that is dividing families. Like, what? We could spend a week trying to understand this. I thought Jesus was all about flowers and, and, you know, and rainbows and unicorns. Like, No. Jesus knew that his teaching was going to so disrupt society that families would be torn apart. 
Jesus wasn't just like everybody just love everybody. I mean, ultimately, that is what he was saying. But in order to get everybody to actually love each other, we need to tear down, here's the, here's the word again, a lot of systemic evil. A lot of societal and oppressive evils need to be torn down. And in doing that, one of the societal evils was the pressure that children had to perform for their parents to follow the practices and teachings of Jesus meant that some people were going to have to say no to their parents, which actually broke the law of Moses and ripped families apart. This is powerful stuff, and God becomes angry when power systems get abused. And oh man, in every gospel, Jesus, the only people that make Jesus angry powerful people who abuse power. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you pit of snakes, you whitewashed graves. This is not the kind and gentle Jesus that we all want to picture. <laughs> this is an angry Jesus. And he was without sin. Well, I think knowing what makes God angry comes from this story of asking a question, where does God abide? This comes from, we did a, a whole study of the Gospel of John, and to frame the whole Gospel of John, I know that's not what we're doing right now, but to frame the Gospel of John, the opening scene where Jesus encounters his disciples John the baptizer says, Behold the Lamb of God. And so some of John's disciples start following Jesus. And Jesus turns around and he says to them, What are you looking for? And their response to him is so important to understand the Gospel of John because what they say is, Where are you abiding? And that word abiding is a key word throughout the Gospel of John. Because the question that we need to ask of God and of ourselves is, where do we hang out? Where do we dwell? In our spirit and in our physical spaces. And Jesus' response was, come and see. Watch how I live my life, and you will find out where God dwells. And in the story of the temple, one of the things to understand about understanding the Gospel of John is that the Gospel of John is presented in couplets, stories that are in couplets, where one story happens in Galilee, which shows what it should be in the kingdom of heaven, and then the next story happens in Jerusalem, which shows how the kingdom of heaven has been distorted by the religious system. And we see this first in the very first miracle of Jesus happens at a wedding, and it's the story of Jesus turning the water to wine where at the end of the party, everybody's like, oh no, we ran out of everything. All we have left is water. And Jesus takes the ceremonial basins of water and he turns it into like 160 gallons of the best wine ever. A couple applications from that. Jesus likes to party, which makes me love him even more, but more and theologically significant than that is that God is a God of abundance. And God lives at the wedding feast. 
and never runs out, right? And then that's contrasted with the story of Jesus coming to the temple where all the religious leaders are being stingy and they're extorting the poor and it's like we don't have enough. And so Jesus comes in and he turns the tables over and he makes a whip of cords and he drives the money changers out of the temple court and he says, stop making my father's house, the temple of God, a marketplace. It should be a house of prayer. And the disciples reflecting, the writer of John reflecting back on this event, remembers that the psalmist said that the zeal of the Lord would consume him. And then Jesus says something really fascinating. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Was he talking about the temple of bricks and stone? He's talking about himself. So here's a really interesting thing. And now I'm going to start treading into dangerous waters. I might make some people angry, and that's okay. The question we need to ask ourselves is, as followers of Jesus, and as citizens of the United States of America, where do we abide? The original creation of this good earth was symbolized in the Garden of Eden where God walked in the garden with all things, with humanity and the creatures, and they were naked and unashamed in full fellowship with God, with each other, and with all things. This is the intent, and this is how God seeks to dwell in this world. Well, we messed it up, and now we are in a world full of violence and fear, because the violence comes from fear, right? As soon as we knew we were capable of betraying God and each other, we became fearful of each other. And fear leads to self-protection, and self-protection leads to violence, which leads to war, which leads to famine, destruction, and death. It's called the four horsemen, <laughs> right? So fast forward to the story of Moses. The presence of God comes among the people and God says to Moses, build the tent. Another word for the tent is a tabernacle. So the presence of God is among the people. And the thing about a tabernacle is it's simple. And when God moves, you pack it up and you follow where God leads. But then what happens? Fast forward, this, this is all Old Testament history, which we have to have, to have a lot of context for this to make sense, right? Fast forward, Solomon, the son of David, decides to build a building which becomes permanent. Once the temple was built, the people of God could no longer pull up stakes and follow where God was leading. And you know what God said to Solomon about this, this beautiful box that he built? Pretty box. And I'll hang out there as long as you keep your heart right. But if you stray away from who I actually am, I'm out. God is not bound by the box that we build. And eventually it was destroyed, and then King Herod, who was the king when Jesus was born, built the second temple. Let me give you a little scope on this temple. 
This will become very important in just a moment. This is the size of an American football field, right? This is the size of the tabernacle in its original construction. Isn't that fascinating? Smaller than an American football field. This is the size of, Sol size of Solomon's temple. Same footprint as the tabernacle, but what shifted is it became permanent and immovable. Look what happened. The empire of Babylon came and destroyed that pretty box. And God sent the people into exile. And then the people came back from exile. They built another temple. And 400 years later, this guy named Herod comes along. And he builds his version of the temple. I'm resisting all kinds of things to say right now. Look at how big that temple is. This is the temple that Jesus encountered in his life. This is the temple where Jesus turned the tables over. Where does God dwell? King Herod was a puppet of the Roman Empire. And he extorted the people to get more and more wealth to make the temple huge and beautiful and magnificent so that when people looked at Jerusalem, they'd say, wow, Jerusalem is amazing. Their God must be amazing too. When Jesus, Jesus entered into that temple, <laughs> made him angry. Because what happened to that temple? In AD 70, the Roman Empire destroyed that temple, and that temple has never been rebuilt. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. That's the actual translation of the Word. Most translations say, and lived among us, but it's skene, which means tent or tabernacle. Jesus is the tabernacle of God. And where did Jesus abide? The very first tabernacle was not built among the rich and the famous and the powerful. It was built among a group of newly freed slaves who had no idea how to live in this world. And that's where God dwells. Where did Jesus hang out? He didn't even own a home. He hung out with the Samaritan woman that everyone else hated. He hung out with the sick and the blind. He hung out with the hungry, and he hung out with the outcasts. Jesus, where do you abide? Jesus said, come and see. What makes God angry? When people with power abuse, exploit, and ignore the weak. And in our society today, in, a, in a, a world of globalized economy, radical individualization, and unfettered wealth and power. I just heard this statistic this week. Did you know that three men in the United States own more wealth than 50% of our population? We have a political system, and our political system has become a manipulation of power. 
We have an economic system that is a manipulation of money, where money is now making money. We're no longer just selling goods for money, we're selling money for money. And we have a religious system that has become a manipulation of the theory of God, where religious leaders wield power and distort it and abuse it. The reason I spent time on this is because I believe that these cultural factors are a huge part of the increase of anxiety, depression, addiction, and suicide. When 50% of the population can't even make enough money to live, that's a hopelessness, right? And yet society tells us through all of the media, through all of the channels, just work harder and you'll be successful. It's not true. My kids can't even make enough money to get their own apartment together, which is why they still live with me. It is so hard for 20-somethings who come from a white, privileged family. They can't even make it. And if you want to follow the American dream, most kids who do go to college end up with $80,000 in student loans with a bachelor's degree. It will take them decades to pay that off. And you wonder why they feel hopeless and helpless. Richard Rohr is one of my favorite teachers, and he says, challenging the status quo is unpopular. And Jesus was killed for opposing the religious and political powers of his time. But this is where Jesus abides. Martin Luther King, Jr., was an excellent example of how to stand against systemic evil without violence. 20th century example. When people with power abuse, exploit, or ignore the weak, because that's what makes God angry, because that's where God abides. Every human being is a precious child of God. And when we hurt them, God is angry. And if we are the body of Christ, shouldn't we be too? Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. There is a time to be angry, but we do not see, and this is where, this is where our, our political discourse, our public discourse right now is so unhelpful, because yes, people are angry for valid reasons on, on all sides of the conversation, but we're not, we don't know how to actually converse about it. We don't turn our anger into constructive discourse. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And then in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says, don't avenge yourselves. It's up to God. See, because the distorted application of anger is vengeance. What some call retributive justice. You did something wrong, you need to pay for it. And it's my job to make you pay. 
That is a destructive system of justice. God is the one who settles the scores. Our job is to bring wholeness and healing to all people. So what can we do about it? I know that was a pun, but I just poured on you. But again, before we get to the practical steps, I just want you to understand that theologically, anger is not bad. But it needs to be for the things that God gets angry about. So, when we struggle with anger, we're going to switch to practical things real quick. What's the first way to deal with our anger? Breathe deeply. You're going to find that as a running theme. <laughs> when you get angry, remember when you were a kid and you were like fuming over something? What did your mom tell you? Count to ten. That's a practical way to help kids know how to breathe. Right? Breathe through it. Second thing, walk away. I don't mean be an imploder in a negative sense, but as a pastor and as a, a religious leader who sometimes evokes controversial topics, I have found myself in spaces where the anger was getting to a point where I knew that there wasn't going to be helpful discourse. We just need to move away from that space because our job is to create safe spaces where people can bring their disagreements and actually listen and learn how to talk, right? Third thing, and I think this is probably the most important one, examine your boundaries. When you become angry, ask yourself, what, has, what violation has just happened? This is what we did, right? This is our, our beginning exercise. I know a lot of people are angry. But how do we ask the question, is what I'm angry about what God is angry about? And then, on a practical level, we need to learn how to communicate clearly and constructively. No two people agree 100% about anything. The key to your marriage is to fight well. That's what I tell every premarital counseling session. The key to marriage is learning the rules of engagement, how to listen, how to understand, how to validate, how to respond. Because uh, Gary Smalley, a wonderful marriage counselor, he said that conflict is the gateway to intimacy. If you learn how to move through conflict, you'll go deeper and deeper in intimacy. But if you don't know how to fight well and manage your anger, you're just going to move further and further apart and remain acquaintances. And then finally, if anger becomes clinically a problem for you, counseling is okay. Some people, uh, just like we talked about anxiety as a spectrum, there are clinical anger disorders where people cannot manage their anger with these kinds of steps. Um, therapy. But if your anger is destroying your marriage, if it's destroying your own sense of well-being, seek counseling. That being said, we now have 
actually have time for questions and dialogue. I just fire hosed you with a whole bunch of stuff right before lunch, and you guys are struggling to stay attentive. Um, so I'm done talking about anger. I open it up for questions or comments and constructive dialogue. I liked your comment about dialoguing because I don't do this all the time, of course, but when my wife and I have a disagreement, uh, you know, we may have to have a cooling off period or something, but we can share and then come to, you know, a deeper understanding of what each other's is talking about. Sometimes it's just misunderstanding. And uh, sometimes my solution and her solution can be joined together and form a better solution mm -hmm. than what we originally had, and we get closer together because we've done it together. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. We have two ways, and when they come into constructive dialogue, there forms a third way. And I believe that is the way of God. I just preached about that this weekend, actually, on Trinity Sunday. Because the third way is the movement of God in the world. Other comments, questions? Well, I'm just wondering if you or anyone here has tips on how to encourage someone to um, seek counseling when... Well, my daughter is in a marriage where her husband is explosive and talks about suicide. And and yet she wants him to go to counseling or said she'll go with him and he's at this point won't. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing you say is that her husband is he's having suicidal ideation mental health professionals say he's thinking about suicide and he's explosively angry so let's and your question was tips okay so the first tip is to seek to understand and I'm going to use your example as a way to reinforce how anger is a secondary emotion my guess is that his anger is an alarm system to whatever is going on in his life that is leading him to think that life's not worth living. And I will tell you that the, again, I'm not talking about your situation now because I don't know it. So the increase in suicide is among uh, white men because white men have been in control of everything for centuries. And we are feeling, I say we because I'm a white man, <laughs> are feeling that control slipping away. That is a sense of loss, of grief, of, of perceived violation. And that's why there's so much anger and hopelessness. Because if everything that you ever thought to be true is no longer true, just on Tuesday morning of this week, I sat at a table with a man, net worth over a million dollars, who 
is an executive of huge corporations who just experienced a divorce and lost his jobs, and now he wants to take his own life. I'm like, dude, you have everything that... I didn't say this to him. I didn't say, stop it! I didn't do that to him. But I just use that as, as, to say, he is not alone in whatever is going on in his life. But your question was, how do you help someone seek the help that they need? There isn't an answer to that. And that's what can make us angry, <laughs> right? Because when we feel so helpless to help someone that we need, no needs help and they can't see it. Um, does anybody have any tips for her? Suggestions? I know we all know someone like that. Yes, Kim. You can offer love and support to somebody, but with somebody like myself who has bipolar disorder, unless they want the help, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. You can't force somebody to get help that doesn't want it. Thank you, Kim. I'm glad that you said that. It comes better from you than from me but it's the truth. Um, I read a book that was written by a Methodist pastor, and it was called um, Generation to Generation, A Manual for Healing. Mm. And I read it, and I was so inspired by it because, you know, if you can talk about alcoholism, you can talk about depression, you can talk about all these different things in our lives, anger, and oftentimes there's this passing down uh, in our families of the ways we react and the way we behave. So this woman, and I, I mean, I don't know how she did it with her congregation, but this woman was a therapist and a pastor, and she would sit down with, I mean, they'd have to want it, but <laughs> and they'd, she'd sit down, and of course, that empty chair at the end was the chair of Jesus. And so this whole therapy went around and around about, and, and many people, and I can't give you numbers, but many people were, were aware then of how they were reacting. Mm. I mean, it's pretty cool, but, but like she said, you have to kind of want to do something, you know? Thank you for that. That sounds like a wonderful book. Yeah. I, I had, I want to, one thing, and then Kevin's got them. Um, I was just reading a book this week um, about the mirror. When you think about a mirror, a mirror has no judgment. A mirror simply reflects what it encounters. Right? And again, this was a Richard Rohr thing, so it's like God is a mirror for us because God's God shows back to us the truth of who we are with no judgment just receives it and exposes it and I bring that up because for, for this man and your daughter first of all if she's in danger she needs to get out of danger first rule right if she's not afraid and he has not physically hurt her but first things first, get out of harm's way, right? 
it's not noble for a spouse to stay in a physically abusive or any kind of abusive situation. You need physical separation if, if you are in danger. But if you feel like you can handle it, there, there is a very tricky kind of mirroring that needs to happen in a very non-anxious, non-judgmental reflection of this is what I see when this happens. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm seeing in, in, in your anger. And, but ultimately, so Kevin, what would you, Pastor Kevin, all the wisdoms about the unleash. Sure it is. Uh, Steve, you, you mentioned something. I, I too meet with people. And the reality, I, the man that you talked about, I meet with CEOs too. And they come in and they will say, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm responsible for all of these people's livelihoods and everything. And there's anger because they feel the loss of control, but really there's fear. Mm -hmm. and, and that fear is huge. And there's this one man who was very agitated. I, I just said, what is life like for you right now? And he said, and he gave a very good image. He said, it's like taking a pop bottle and shaking it up, but not having the release valve. And mm -hmm. it's just inside. And I, you know, and I, and I said, what would help you? And he, with this anger, and he said, our culture moves so fast, nobody wants to listen. And I wonder if we, as Christians, if we take the time in a safe place to just listen, mm. we can't solve it, but to, to be that holy voice and ears of just being with them, like the Brene Brown video of just being with them in the empathy and like, I can't do anything about it, but I'm here, mm -hmm. I'm here. I wonder if that can be one of the areas of growth. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think, um, I think of a, a book in a movement called Slow Church. I think that our, our churches themselves exacerbate all of these problems because we're so success-oriented and trying to move and shake and do the next big thing, when really the church needs to be a place to slow down and be able to be present with each other. Um, well, it's lunchtime. Go in peace. Love and serve the Lord. I'll see you in the morning. Have a great afternoon. Well, folks, this concludes the second session of Pastor Steve Thomason's 2019 Overcome series here at Mount Carmel Ministries. I pray that you've been blessed and renewed by the lessons that Steve had to share. You know, sharing these messages through podcasts is a new ministry, which we hope to continue, but it won't be possible without some help. If you feel like you've been blessed by this message, please head over to mountcarmelministries.com or call 320-846-2744 to give. Thank you in advance and tune in tomorrow for Pastor Steve's next session.